Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The 2022 Winter Olympics have been celebrated as one of the most inclusive in history. According to Outsports, over 36 LGBT athletes are competing during the Games, and that's nearly double the amount from just four years ago. But some still question whether winter sports and the Olympics are truly accessible to underrepresented communities. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. All this hour, we go for the gold. Later, a Sports Illustrated writer talks about being inside the bubble in Beijing. And she tells us why she thinks the legitimacy of the Olympics is at risk. But first, ice hockey. It's one of the game's biggest sports, and it's been a fixture since it was first included in 1920. But it wasn't until 1998 when the event became co-ed. Since then, thousands of girls have seen that women's hockey is just as competitive and just as exciting as the men's games. One of those athletes is Julie Chu. The Fairfield native is one of the most decorated female Winter Olympians of all time. She won a medal in all four of her trips to the Winter Olympics, and she made history as the first Asian American woman to play for the U.S. national ice hockey team. Today, Julie is head coach of the Concordia University women's hockey team in Montreal. Julie, welcome to Disrupted. Ah, Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, this is exciting. You are one of the most decorated Winter Olympians in U.S. history, but your journey to hockey almost didn't happen. Share with our listeners how you started playing and what makes hockey so special to you. Absolutely. Um, So I grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut, and uh, growing up, especially in that area, soccer was probably the the most popular sport for for young girls to play because every elementary school had it. The the town had a a team or many teams. So um, that was the easy one for me to fall into. And then suddenly when I was in second grade, my brother, who's four years older, came home and asked my parents if he could play hockey. I didn't hear this conversation. I didn't know anything about the conversation, but my parents were like, okay, we don't know anything about hockey, but let's go to the local rink in Bridgeport, Connecticut and sign my uh, sign our kids up for, for hockey for my brother. And then for my sister and myself, we got signed up for figure skating. <laughs> but about uh, two, two months later, my eyes just kept going to where the boys were playing hockey and, and that's what I wanted to do. So I was really lucky that when I asked my parents, can I switch over to hockey, that they said yes. Uh, and I think it would have been really easy for them at the time to say no, because girls weren't playing hockey and Asian girls weren't playing hockey. And we didn't know about hockey in our family, but they did just because their young girl wanted to get an opportunity to play a sport that she hopefully would, would love and, and fall in love with. You have talked about the freedom of being out on the ice and the the speed that is incorporated into that. Is that something that drew you in at that early age? Or was it that as you became more familiar with the sport, it was the appeal of all these things you could do on the ice? Yeah, I think it was a combination of everything. I, I think it was um, the team atmosphere that really drew me in. I, I've always been a team sport athlete and and just looking and seeing that they were having so much fun. And, and in all honesty, I, I used to watch the, the boys out there skating and going in and out of the, the figure skaters learn to skate programs. And I was kind of 
laughing and be like, maybe I want to do that. <laughs> um, so I, I think it was a combination of everything. It, it started with just wanting to be um, doing something my older brother was doing and then wanting to be a part of a team atmosphere. And then eventually f- figuring out that it was something that I really, really loved to do. And as simple as having two cones on the ice and skating around them in circles, which right now probably is not the most fun thing to do when you get older with something I really like to do. So I, I think it's just the small process of finding the sport, having people around me that supported me and encouraged me to, to try something new and to be really bad at it to start so that I could fall in love with it and I could get better. And then, as you said, then that speed and the freeness that we felt as we got better at playing was able to come into place. So I think it's that whole journey of, of learning a new sport, but learning a new sport where you're, we're accepted within that environment and we feel like we can grow and learn and, and enjoy it. One of the things that is often key for young people to learn and to be able to explore is having the support of family or others who can not just encourage them, but actually make it possible. And so there's a report from the Aspen Institute that says ice hockey is one of the most expensive sports for kids to play. So families are averaging about $2,500 a year on travel, on equipment, ice time, classes, all of the things that come along with it. How did you convince your parents to make this type of investment in you? Because as you said, it was so unfamiliar for your family, but also different from how you were initially brought into a sport on the ice. Yeah, I I do think that's one of the biggest challenges that that hockey faces right now is the accessibility. The costs are, are increasingly going up for equipment, for ice time. And then also just if you are on a elite program of the travel expenses that are happening. So it is one of the biggest concerns. And and so I, when we were younger, I think it was it was something as simple as being okay with used equipment, being okay with hand-me-downs and not feeling that, especially at the younger age, that we have to go into a store and spend, you know, $1,000 or $800 on kids' equipment that they'll grow out of in about three months. I have a four-year-old that is sprouting over here. <laughs> and, and so I, I think there has to be an okay, like an acceptance that it's okay to use used equipment. It's okay to pass that down to others as well um, so that it could be more accessible and more affordable. And so I, I think that when I was starting hockey at eight years old, to be honest, I, I didn't have a concept of the costs. And my parents were, were always uh, awesome and seeing how do they make it all work? How do they find ways to, to allow our, our young kids to pursue things that they were interested in and passionate about. And I'm sure that the costs were, were really were really heavy. And I'm sure that that factored into decisions they made for our family, but they never really let us know about that. And now as I'm getting older and I understand more about the cost, I think that's something that I'm really appreciative is, is how supportive they were, um, knowing that it's not as easy as just saying, yep, yeah, go ahead and, uh, you know, there's a lake to swim in or, or whatever it is. So I think that's what I want to provide for our, my my young daughters and those around us as one, that ability to, to chase their dreams, whatever it might be, be able to make things more accessible. So I think as uh, for us, we're, we're working constantly to see, okay, can we create opportunities that are low cost for, for young go- girls and boys to participate in? Uh, and then how do we get over the hurdle of the equipment? Right? I think that's the biggest thing is you want to try it out, but equipment's not there. So how do we create that ability so that we can get more people in the sport and then we can find resources to to make it sustainable for different families, um, whatever our needs might be. When we think about access and the opportunity for kids to even see what's possible, we always hear the phrase representation matters. 
And so I'm curious for you, growing up in Fairfield County, and you mentioned going over to Bridgeport to skate, and Fairfield is often thought of as a predominantly white community, as a more affluent part of the state. And so the location can also have an impact on access for kids across every grouping, whether it's class or identity and ethnicity. Did you feel any pressure growing up in that community in terms of, you know, do I fit in in this area? Do I fit in in this sport? Or was it more about this is a space where I can be myself and pursue my dreams and not be bound by those kinds of limits? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. I think the the thing that was I was fortunate of, and to some extent, it was that I was pretty naive as a kid. I was just a, someone that was like this happy-go-lucky uh, person that just went and and did what I did and enjoyed what I wanted to enjoy and and didn't let kind of exterior things bother me as much. And was I still influenced? Absolutely, we're humans. We get influenced by those around, but like not only in hockey, but when I grew up, I I grew really tall and fast. So when I was in fifth grade, I was already five, seven, five, eight, and like 130 pounds, which if you actually go back to elementary school now and you see the fifth graders, you're like, I was really big and I didn't even realize this. And and that's just who I was. And so I think that to some extent, I I think for me, I, I was okay with that. I was okay being different, but it also is a testament to those around me that made me feel okay being different. Um, and so it, it never became a big barrier for me um, being an Asian American trying to play hockey. If anything, it was a little bit more of being a girl playing hockey, uh, because when I first started, you'd go around the entire season and not see another girl playing hockey until my sister started playing. And then there was the two of us. <laughs> but I, I think that, if anything, um, was a little bit more of the, the obvious. And for the majority of the time, as far as my teammates, they were, they were awesome. They're credible. They just treated me like a hockey player. And that's what I wanted to, to be treated like, not as a girl playing hockey that was more isolating, but just one of their teammates. Um, and yes, you'll have an occasional boy on the other team that will make a comment. But for me, it was actually pretty rare. Uh, and speaking with my parents, to be honest, it was more the parents that were nasty than it was the kids. And thankfully, being inside a rink, I didn't get to hear any of that. Look, let's talk about some of those transitions and those challenges. And, you know, I'm, I'm laughing because I often feel kids just want to play and have fun. And parents often make it more complicated and, you know, more divisive than it needs to be. But you did make the transition from playing in these predominantly or with boys on these teams to then moving toward girls teams. You were a student at Choate Rosemary Hall, and then you later played at Harvard University. Talk about that transition of moving from a mixed team with boys to girls teams and how that transition shapes your view of the sport and your experience. Yeah. So I I grew up and started playing hockey when I was eight years old and then just got an opportunity to play for four years on on a boys team. And then right around when 12 or 13, even though I was taller, I think it was just a normal, natural shift to then shift to a a girls program. Um, We had a a really strong program, the Connecticut Polar Bears. Um, At the time, a a bunch of my teammates went on to, to be on Olympic team which was pretty fun as well to see our paths cross uh, later on from being 12, 13 years old to you know being in our 20s or, or older. And um, so so for me, it was a cool shift because one, at some point, physicality wise, like now suddenly where I was the five, eight player, now the boys were the six foot players. And you're like, 
it might be about time. Um, but then I also do think to some extent, the camaraderie that we have in the locker room experience to be able to connect with our peers just a little bit closer. And, and again, I had a great experience with playing boys hockey. I had a great experience with my teammates there. Um, but that shift was, I think, really special because now suddenly it wasn't just an occasional girl that I might see here and there. Now we were in an environment where we felt kind of the passion we all had. We felt the effort we were putting in and how connected we were as a team, which was no different to the efforts and the connection that I had a, as a team on my mixed team or a boys team. Um, so I think that's what really was stood out a lot was to realize that there was a lot of actually awesome and passionate uh, girl hockey players out there. And then realizing with all these opportunities that were still in place in playing prep school hockey in high school and then university hockey. And right around that time, then the Olympics uh, came into place where in 1998, the first Olympic team, uh, the first time women's hockey was in the Olympics. So all these things kind of came into place when in those 90s, when I was really playing my youth uh, sports and allowed me to then think of something bigger than just making my local boys team. How can I then dream of going to all these steps and one day the Olympics? That's former Olympic ice hockey player Julie Chu. When we return, we'll hear more from Julie about playing on the world's biggest stage and later a sports writer in Beijing on how COVID is affecting this year's Winter Olympics. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we're taking a look at the Winter Olympics. Coming up, we'll hear more about this year's games in Beijing. But now we continue our conversation with celebrated Olympian and ice hockey forward, Julie Chu. Julie qualified for the U.S. national team during her senior year of high school. It was the same year that she was elected student body president. And at just 19 years old, she competed at the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. I asked Julie to share that first experience at the Olympics. Uh, I always laugh because I was fortunate to go to four Olympic Games. Um, but that first one and, and any first that we have, even the first time I pulled on a USA hockey jersey and it was it was simply a practice jersey and, you know, no fans or nothing else like that was special. But to get a chance to to do it in 2002 in Salt Lake City and have so many of my friends and family there, uh, that's what really made a difference. And I think what I remember the most, um, a lot of things, but I do really remember the opening ceremonies because for me, what the Olympics is about is bringing together a lot of different people from different walks of life in different countries and having a connectiveness amongst ourselves versus the differences that sometimes are more, <laughs> I think are brought to light oftentimes more than the positives. So having to watch, having gotten a chance to watch it the summer, the winter games as, as a kid and being like, this is unreal, to then getting a chance to walk in and uh, go through that process, which isn't just like, okay, get dressed and you're in in 10 minutes. It's like, get dressed and wait for like five, six hours. And then finally you get the excitement building up and and you get there and the stadium opens up and we're walking in as a, a Team USA to our home crowd to some to a lot of extents. Uh, it was pretty special. And, and my parents were at that uh, opening ceremonies. I couldn't find them because it's a gigantic stadium, but it's pretty special to know they were there because they're a huge part of who I am, why I had this opportunity, because we sometimes think back, what if they said no? What if they said no to their, their second grade uh, daughter to play a sport that no girls were really playing, but they said yes, and it altered all of our lives, I think, in a really positive and awesome way. 
it is such a beautiful tapestry of cultures and experiences to watch that opening ceremony. And as you said, to be reminded of what binds us together and how that binding is often stronger than the kinds of divisions that we see across countries, but also within country. Your first Olympics in the United States, playing in this historic time for women's hockey. Did you feel added pressure to to be in the Olympics in your home country? No, I actually thought it was actually the bonus. It was the strength that we felt from the U.S. fans and from being connected to the U.S. When I first learned that it was going to be in the U.S. and I was actually on the path to, to potentially make the team, I remember saying to one of our teammates, I go, oh, that's really cool, but I wish we were like doing it somewhere else so I can go travel and, and experience something new and different. And they all laughed. They said, no, like you'll realize how special it is to be able to go to an Olympics itself, but an Olympics in your own country. And again, I was 18 at this time. So I, I didn't really have a clue of all how everything worked. But when they said that, and then I had the opportunity to actually experience, I go, I guess our older players know better <laughs> because it is, it's something really special to be able to be in a place where we can connect with so many of the, the people that we love at that environment and have them be at our journey and in person. And, and it wasn't pressure. It was just this excitement and anything you get more of an uplift having that opportunity. So that first one, you won a silver medal. I just, I'm blown away. First Olympics, young person, you win a silver and you make history by becoming the first Asian American woman to compete at the Olympics in a sport other than figure skating. So not only do you take on this task that you're so great at, it also raises the profile for athletes of different backgrounds to say, if people have the chance and opportunity, they can compete at the highest levels. In your second match in Salt Lake City, you faced China in the preliminary match. What was that game like for you to be aware of the possibility of what could happen for you in this first Olympics? Yeah, it's always special because that's a part of who I am. Um, you know, I'm Chinese Puerto Rican and um, and grew up a, a lot with the Chinese culture and in our family and our traditions and and who we are and and the values that we believe in and and the importance of our family and the work ethic and, and respect and honor. Uh, and so it, it's special. So having that chance to to play against you know where my heritage is from is really special. And it's actually not the first time I've played against them. We had some matches before, so I had that opportunity to run into their players and their coaches. And, and at one point, one of them even joked, hey, you should be playing for our team and come on over. Like, do you want to switch teams? <laughs> like this was in a hallway and I was with my US coach and we both kind of laughed with the, the translator as they were having this moment. But you know, I, I think it's great and I think it's significant. Um, representation does matter. And when I was younger, as I said, I was kind of clueless to it because I was just in my own bubble and I was around people that treated me well and they treated me for me. And that really helped me. But I understand that that's not always the case for everyone. But I do understand the importance of being able to see what's possible. So for me, it wasn't necessarily seeing an Asian in the, in the Olympics, but it was seeing women's hockey in the 1998 Olympics. And that was my representation. And that was the, the idea that, whoa, we, we can do this. And now this is what's possible. And so I think that's where it's really important when we talk about visibility in, in, of women's sports. Like, I think the stat is, women's sports gets covered four to five percent of the time and yet they we oftentimes get a lot of negative uh, comments directed towards women's sports and women's athletes about oh no one watches it well 
four to five percent. Let's see if anyone has the opportunity to watch it. Right. I think there's a lot that that goes into it. So um, for myself, uh, having that that great honor, and I always say that it's an honor to get a chance to have represented the U.S. It's an honor now to still coach women's hockey at the university level. And I say the same thing to our student athletes, some of which might get a chance to go to that next level and play for, we have Canadians on our team, Team Canada, but who might not, but they have the opportunity as student athletes to influence younger kids, to let them know, hey, coaches can be girls for one thing. And at the same time, girls and women play hockey and they play it really well. (laughs) So I think there's a lot of great things we can do by making us more visible as role models, and then us more accepting, therefore, uh, of the culture and the environments that we're, we're creating. You are now a coach, as you said, at the collegiate level. And so you are helping to cultivate the next generation of women's athletes who then become also a marker and a role model for younger girls. And we have evidence that it's it's making an impact in terms of that visibility and showing people what's possible. So in a report, it says that in 2002, this is from USA Hockey, there were about 3,000 girls playing on teams across the country. And in the latest report, that number has ballooned to nearly 85,000. What do you think is behind that tremendous growth of more girls entering the sport? Visibility. Absolutely. Uh, There's the numbers broken down, I think, after uh, 1998 or every Olympic Games, there's a huge jump and boost in, in growth in girls signing up to play. Uh, and I think that's that's exactly it. When we can see what's possible, then we can actually believe that maybe that could be something that could be for me. But if we can't see it, then it's really hard to dream of something we don't even know we should try to dream about. So I think we see it every single Olympics is there's a boost in, in um, you know, the growth of, of girls and women's hockey every Olympic cycle. And it makes sense. It's only two and a half weeks, really, of intense focus on the women's team. And we already get three to four or earlier on seven, eight, nine percent growth. Um, from a two and a half week period. So imagine if we invested in women's sports and women's hockey for a longer period of time, if we found a way to have a sustainable one unified uh, professional women's hockey league so that young girls can then have them be their role models. So their favorite team could be a female team and doesn't have to be an NHL team. Uh, And I think that's what we're working on. and, And that's what we're hoping for is that growth and that ability to get to that point. You know, I'm a a college professor at a university where hockey is big deal. I'm at Quinnipiac University. Oh, yes. (laughs) And so it's amazing because it's not just the men's hockey team. It's the women's hockey team, too, saying, look, we play just as enthusiastic, just as dedicated, just as exciting. And what that means for other people to see what's possible, that if we invest and commit this is the kind of outcome. The other thing that we see is that often women's athletes are standouts in the classroom as well because they understand, right? We're, we're fighting against this sort of limit. We will invest in our future in multiple ways. And I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing to support student athletes, but to also make it more accessible. And we've said quite a few times today representation matters, opportunity matters. And I'm thinking here about Winter Olympics, where we're hearing about Aaron Jackson and Nathan Chen and others who are breaking these barriers. But there's a piece of me that says it's 2022 and we still have to talk about first. And we're still acknowledging those big wins. 
What do you think we could do to make winter sports, not just ice hockey, but winter sports more accessible to communities of color so that we don't talk about the first or the only, but about multiple athletes in these spaces? Uh, that's that's a great question because I, I think one of the challenges is I think location for say the the sports like snowboarding or skiing is tough. You need access to a mountain, and we might not live in areas to that. Um, but I do think that if you look at bobsledding and, and luge and skeleton, people don't necessarily grow up having had the opportunity to do those sports. Some do if they were exposed early on because they do they have been doing a great job of going out and outreaching, going to to local. Um, elementary schools and, and trying to, to recruit athletes. Um, and oftentimes they might be athletes that were in a different sport, whether it be football, track and field, um, softball, and then see if they want to convert to bobsledding um, or to another sport. So I, I do think that outreach is really important. And I do think for us uh, in the winter sports capacity, we have to be more creative in how we, we engage different people so that we can one, continue to grow and bring more diversity and inclusion, and but diversity to our sport which then makes it more, you know, more engaging, more accessible and, and, and better. And, and that's not just hockey, as you said, it, it's all these different sports. So I do think there has to be kind of an active, you know, recruitment process and recruitment sounds a little strange when they're younger, but at least outreach to, to let, um, you know, young people know that this is an opportunity. And, and I do see that to some extent happening in, in hockey, where maybe in some non-traditional markets, say Arizona, uh, where they're doing more ball hockey to start. And then from there, maybe that's where, oh, I, I like this, this is fun. So we can do ball hockey in the gym, we can do it outside, and then suddenly say, okay, these are the, the resources we also have in place where if you want to try it now on the ice, this is what's possible. So how do we create those grassroots initiatives to reach out to then kind of get people excited and then find a pathway to allow them have that excitement to then translate to the slope, translate to the ice or even the curling rink, whichever it might be. <laughs> it's for me when I think about Beijing this year. And with all the uncertainty that's happening across the world because of the pandemic, because of just, you know, the, the need for people to have an outlet to focus on something that makes them feel connected and helps them experience joy. I feel like we needed this moment of the Olympics to sort of not distract us, but to remind us what's possible. You have a lot of former teammates, lots of friends who are competing in Beijing right now. What's that experience like for you to, to watch from afar, but to know what it takes to compete at that level, especially in this current environment? Yeah, it's so special because I, I think I can't even imagine what the athletes have gone through this this last Olympic cycle. Every Olympic cycle is different, difficult, and it's challenging. And we get we have these incredible highs and then we have lows. And whether we're the best players in the world or someone that's always in the bubble of making a team or not, we all go through struggles. Um, we're humans. And, and I think sometimes it gets glamorized that that's not the case. But I'll let you know, we all struggle. So it's OK. But then you throw in a pandemic. And you throw in a lot of canceled events and you you throw in a lot of uncertainty and the stress and, and the, the challenge of trying to make an Olympic team and be at our best even gets, you know, it's even greater now with this. And so when I see all these athletes and yes, I still have a lot of friends on our U.S. women's 
hockey team. Um, so I'm cheering them on. We're, we're texting and, and even on team Canada, we have some of our, uh, our, our former coaches that are now on team Canada for Concordia. So you have all these things going on and, and I just want them to be able to enjoy their moment. And I want them to be able to excel. Yes. I'm rooting for team USA because I have a, a connection to them, but I'm rooting for these athletes to get the opportunity to shine because they deserve to. And I think that that's, what's really special is when I see them, and I see the effort they put in and I understand and I know uh, how hard it actually is for them to be on the ice right now or or to be, you know, pursuing the sport that they're in. I I can I can just kind of I get like this, like kind of emotional feeling about it because I know how hard it's been, but I know how special it is for them. And, and so I'm just rooting for all of them. I want them to play great. I want um, some awesome and, and great hockey to say, uh, but we want this in competitive environment. We want this fun uh, aspect that that they can just enjoy because they deserve it. They've worked hard enough to to just enjoy this. You have achieved such remarkable things throughout your career and throughout your life. And there is so much more that I know you are setting your sights on to do. What would you say to a young person in Connecticut who's listening to this conversation, who is reflecting on all that you've done? And, and we love talking to Connecticut natives because it, again, it shows what's possible for people. What would you say to, to a young person who's listening and thinking, I may not be an Olympic athlete, but there's something big that I want to accomplish. And I want to think about what keeps Julie Chu motivated. What would you say to young people? I'd say whatever you want to do, go for it. And I know that that seems really cheesy and it's so simple, but it honestly is. When we have something in our mind that we want to pursue, the only way we know if we're going to get there is if we go for it and we go all in. And we trust that even if it doesn't work out, because this is life, not everything's going to work out, that along that journey, there's a lot of special things that are going to happen and it's going to help shape each of us into who we are. So I, I think it's the risk is always worth it. And getting a chance to, to chase after something we love and the passion that we can put into it is special in itself. And a lot of times it does lead to that end result we want. And if for whatever reason it doesn't, there's a lot of awesome things that we gain along the way that I would never in a hundred years ever trade. You know, what, whatever we have, the ups and the downs, they're special. So don't be afraid. Just go. <laughs> I love it. It's it's a life lesson for all of us. Julie Chu is a fearful native, four-time Olympian, and former captain of the U.S. women's ice hockey team. She's now head women's ice hockey coach at Concordia University. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. To find out more about Julie's Hall of Fame career, you can visit our webpage at ctpublic.org slash disrupted. After the break, Sports Illustrated Stephanie Epstein on the biggest storyline coming out of the Beijing Winter Olympics. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. On top of the usual excitement of an Olympic season, the games in Beijing have piled on the drama. We're dealing with a global pandemic. We've seen accusations of favoritism and cheating and a new Russian doping scandal. And all of that is playing out in a larger political context. 
Stephanie Epstein is senior writer for Sports Illustrated. She joined us earlier in the week from Beijing to talk about what she's experiencing in the Olympics bubble. Stephanie, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. You are on the ground in Beijing covering the Winter Olympics. Share with us what it's like to live in that closed loop and your experience covering the game so far. It's very strange, the closed loop. It's truly closed. We are very sealed off from everything. Um, the most I have seen of Beijing is through the windows of the media shuttle. Uh, and so that's kind of a bummer. You know, I'd like to, it's a cool place to be. And it's, it's, a, it's too bad that we don't get to see any of it. But it makes, it makes for just a very bizarre situation, I think, for the media and for the athletes, for really everybody in here, because we feel so removed from regular life. You know, we have been aware that COVID has had this tremendous impact on sports and athletics across the world for the last two years. Although COVID cases seem to be on the decline for athletes and others who are in the loop, we have seen about 500 positive cases that have been reported since the start of the Games. And we're hearing more and more from athletes who talk about that isolation that you mentioned and how that isolation is creating bigger stressors for them. How do you think COVID is affecting the games aside from having to be in the closed loop? And do you think it's worth it, the risk of this isolation for the athletes who are competing? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a question that they're all grappling with. Uh, I think it's affecting the games in almost literally every way. It's Every day starts with a swab down your throat. You can't go anywhere. But then there's also the psychological fear of testing positive. Um, that is, certainly before we got here, that was the main issue that every athlete dealt with. I mean, a lot of them didn't go home for the holidays because everybody was afraid that you were going to have worked four years and your whole life and then not be able to compete because you know, your mask was down for 15 seconds and that, somehow that was enough. So there was a lot of logistical concern and stress getting over here. And then once we're here, it's it's similar because, you know, it it's not about whether you're going to get sick. It's just, is the test going to be positive? And so people are very, everyone here is vaccinated. So there, there's not as much concern that you're going to get really sick. But if that test is positive, that's it. There's a little bit of confusion and sort of stress related to the fact that athletes don't totally understand what they have to do to get out of isolation. And then there is the the terrible stress of being in isolation, both not knowing when you're going to get out and just being in there. I mean, many of them don't have, they've talked about the, the food, the exercise capacity, the Wi-Fi is not great. It's not the uh, the circumstances you would hope to be in right before you compete in the biggest event of your life. You know, the stakes are so high for the athletes, for their families, and for their coaches. And in the past few days, we've been learning more about a doping scandal involving a 15-year-old Russian figure skater named Kamila Valieva. On Monday, the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled that Valieva could continue to compete in upcoming events. And this isn't the first time that Russian athletes have tested positive for banned drugs. And so many are questioning the credibility of the IOC and the disciplinary process of anti-doping agencies. Walk us through what happened in this particular case. Yeah, this is a bad situation in general. Uh, I think the most important thing to remember is that this is a 15-year-old. You know, she's a child. She she would be a high school sophomore in the U.S. So 
that has played into the way that authorities have handled it um, because there's a sense that she can't, you can't really consider her fully responsible for what's happening to her. So the timeline here is that she, on December 25th, she was drug tested at the Russian championships. So she deposited her sample at that point for reasons that haven't really been explained to anybody's satisfaction. That sample was not tested until February 7th. Once she was already here at the games. And in fact, after she had already competed in and helped win the team figure skating event for Russia, at that point, the sample came back positive for uh, a heart medication that, that basically works as a stimulant. So it's, uh, it's listed as a performance-enhancing drug, uh, and she she immediately was provisionally suspended. She requested a hearing, and the Russian doping authorities basically unsuspended her immediately. And at that point, she was allowed to return to competing. And the IOC, the World Anti-Doping Agency, a lot of people were sort of up in arms about how that had transpired. So they appealed that decision to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which ruled that the, that suspension was correctly adjudicated and she is allowed to compete moving forward. Uh, the IOC and WADA are going to appeal that, to, are, are still upset. They, they believe that that decision is incorrect and they're going to uh, continue working on that. And then there's been, basically the only thing the IOC could do about it at the moment is they have, they're, they're going to withhold medal ceremonies if she finishes on the podium, which she's very likely to do. So that is also sort of a devastating outcome, both for her, again, she's a child, and for the other skaters who will finish on the podium. You know, they they aren't going to get this moment that they've been dreaming of. So it's just a mess. No one is having a good time here. Nobody is happy. I mean, it sounds that there are no winners in the situation. And it's complex, as you mentioned, because of her age, because of the timeline of events, but also how it affects other athletes. And one of the athletes that we've been hearing from over the last couple of days is Shakari Richardson, the U.S. track star who was disqualified from competing because of her own doping scandal. And Richardson said, well, why is this different for her? Why should she be able to compete and I wasn't given the chance. Do you think that there's anything there in terms of comparing which athletes are allowed to continue? Or do you think that the unique aspects of this particular case, given her age, the timeline of events, means that it should be adjudicated differently? I think that the uh, the cases are different, and there are a lot of athletes who have had various drug test issues who have pointed out that they they were treated much more harshly. And so I think I think those are all legitimate complaints. Uh, I think in general, this system is bad. And so, yeah, you know, she is 15. And as they pointed out, she had like 24 hours from when she found out about this positive test to mount a defense, which is not fair in the middle of the Olympics. And the feeling is also that she could, if if in the end they rule that they don't want to discipline her and they kept her from competing, there's nothing they can do about that. But if they let her compete and then in the end they do discipline her, they could always take away a medal retroactively. You know, you can't retroactively allow her to skate. So that you can sort of follow the logic. The problem is, I don't think, is the individual cases. It's that this whole system is bad. You know, Russia is not even supposed to be competing here because of state-sponsored doping. And what these rulings say is that they can just keep behaving that way. 
I mean, again, this is a 15 year old who knows if she even had any idea what was being given to her. This is not, this is not a Camila Valieva story, really. This is a story of Russian state sponsored doping and the IOCs looking the other way. You know, the athletes are participating, but it's always about the country of origin as well. And so in addition to the doping scandals, there also have been allegations of cheating and concerns that officials are favoring certain athletes from particular countries. So that last week, a short track skaters from the U.S. and Russia were both disqualified on controversial penalties. Do you think that there's any credibility to these allegations of cheating and favoritism? And if so, is there a way that structurally some of this could be prevented in the future? It's hard to know about individual cases of cheating. Um, and I, I won't claim to, to be enough of an expert in each sport to identify, you know, by the second from video who committed which infraction. But I think that the fact that athletes can't trust that the stuff is being adjudicated fairly is a problem. You know, whether the athletes are right or not, there's cer- certainly at any major event, you, there's going to be some griping and some sour grapes, but that doesn't seem like what this is so much as a, a, a general lack of trust in the institutions. And I think the IOC has really earned that with the various scandals over the years with how tightly connected everyone is. I mean, the Court of Arbitration for Sport is not really independent from the IOC, although it claims to be. The The head of the court was an IOC member for years. The head of the IOC worked on the court for years. It's just not a, these are all kind of the same people. And so the IOC is really running everything. And I think without a major restructuring of the organization, it's it's hard for athletes to trust what's happening here. And it's it's such a shame because the Olympics themselves are such a treasure and it's just the people who run them don't deserve them. The Olympics are a treasure and yet the games are never just about the games when you add in these layers of the IOC and the structure, but also the choices that athletes can make. One of those questions or stories that's come out of this game is about skier Eileen Gu. And so she won gold in the Olympics first ever big air free ski event. And yet people have criticized her choice to represent China in the games. And so we should say that Eileen Gu is Chinese American. Your colleague Michael Rosenberg wrote about her win and said Gu got her gold medal and China got its pawn. What role do you think geopolitics is playing in this year's games? And do you think that it is overshadowing the importance of sport this year? I mean, it's everywhere. I, I'm calling you from a burner phone right now because for security reasons, almost everyone participating was advised to leave their personal devices at home. So I think part of the reason that you haven't heard many athletes speak out specifically about really anything here is other than the conditions that are affecting them at that moment, but they're trying to get out of like isolation is that, you know, we're, we're not in a country that encourages that. And so I think Athletes have been advised to keep their heads down and get through this. And then when they get home, if they have something to say, they can say it then. But right now, focus on sports and don't create problems for yourself. And I think that's that's everywhere. It's true of the athletes. It's true of the people who live here. It's true of people who are working here, like the journalists. I mean, we're all very conscious that this is, that sports are why we're here, but there's a lot more going on than that. I mean, 
you know, the Ukrainian athletes, for example, how can they possibly focus on sports given what's going on at home? And it's hard to answer that question because they don't really want to talk about it. And I don't, I don't really blame them. It's, it's really, it's a really hard time. The Eileen Goose situation is a great example. She, there are a lot of factors at play, probably more than someone of her age can, can fully understand. And probably more than most of us can fully understand. It's all, it's all really complicated. And, you know, that's part of the Olympics too, that this is the, the games are simple, but everything else about them is not. We've seen Olympics in the past that were happening during wartime, during tremendous conflict and strife within a country and between countries. And over the last year, we've been hearing more from athletes talking about their personal struggles, opening up about things like mental health and the pressure of competing when there's so many things happening in their personal lives over which they can't control, but still have these expectations of performance. We heard it with Simone Biles during the Summer Olympics. We're hearing it with Michaela Schifrin during this year's Olympics and whether her personal challenges are separate from the kinds of challenges that she's had in meeting expectations. Do you think that we're getting to a point where we can value athletes and the kinds of challenges that they go through? And if so, do you think that we create too many pressures given all the things that you've mentioned? I hope we are getting to that point. Um, I think that it's, this is sort of an unfair paradigm to them because every four years, you know, the NBC machine turns them into stars and the sort of jingoism slash patriotism of the fans at home means that we're all, we, we are rooting for them, but also sort of seeing it as a, as a real like national disappointment if, if they fail. And this is for, you know, two weeks. And then we spend the next three years and 50 weeks not caring about them at all. And then we're back to putting this level of pressure on them. And I think that's a really hard way for them to live that it's a little bit different when you're say an NFL quarterback or, you know, an NBA player, you, you're used to the level of scrutiny all the time and you're, you're compensated accordingly. And that's very difficult, but your life is at least sort of reliable and you have chances every year. In this case, they get one shot every four years, depending on their age. Sometimes they get one shot total. And they they just, these two weeks are totally unlike any other moment of their lives. And I think, especially during a pandemic Olympics, Olympics where they can't have their friends and family here, they they can't really go anywhere or do anything. There's no There's no distraction from the pressure. I think this is really, really hard, and we're only starting to understand how hard this is. I think it's very hard for them today. And then we always think about the next Olympics and the the next set of challenges and what we can learn from what's happening now in order to better prepare for the future. And one of those challenges that we're all facing is the global threat of climate change and, and how things are shifting. So Beijing sees less than six inches of snowfall each year. And this game has been very reliant on artificial snow. And a lot of environmentalists have said, we should be concerned about the amount of water that's needed to produce snow, about all of the erosion, the soil damage, the impact on the course for athletes, but also for what happens once people have left and the games are over. As you look forward to the the next IOC choice about a host city for future Olympics, 
Do you think that these environmental concerns should play a part in choosing uh, where the Olympics will be hosted? Yeah, it's all it's all sort of ironic, too, because there are almost no athletes who are more environmentally conscious than winter sports athletes because they see themselves every day the impact of climate change. I mean, there are many of them who can't train in the locations they've always trained in because it rains instead of snows there. And so, you know, there are people who used to ski on glaciers and now the glacier is gone. And so they, this, I think more than fans realize and more than really any, you know, you wouldn't see in a baseball locker room, for example, this level of environmental consciousness, but these guys are really serious environmentalists. I mean, they, most of them participate in Plastic Free Fridays. Most of them are involved in environmental organizations. So it, it does feel sort of ironic that this group is attending a game that is so problematic environmentally. Uh, and I think, yeah, I mean, going forward, this is, this is going to be and should be a question for every major sporting event is, is this really worth the cost that we're paying, not just financially, but to the world? And so that's part of the argument about uh, making a permanent site for the Olympics so that it's not, you're not constantly building these stadiums that then are thrown into disrepair four years later when it turns out you don't use them. It's, there aren't a lot of good solutions at this point, but we really need to come up with some. Stephanie Epstein is senior writer for Sports Illustrated. She joins us from Beijing, where she's covering the 2022 Winter Olympics. Stephanie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. To find links to more of Stephanie's coverage from the Games, visit our website at ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Talarski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. Thank you.